The audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Liability, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. All right, everybody. Welcome to the Sherman Show. I'm Jeff Sherman here with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And today we have another exciting guest, as we keep doing here on the Sherman Show. We have none other than David Costin from Goldman Sachs. Welcome to the show, David. Thanks for inviting me. Nice to be here. Uh, absolutely. And for those who don't know David, I'm sure everybody does, but he's uh, Goldman's chief U.S. equity strategist. And responsible for a small task at Goldman, just analyzing and forecasting the U.S. stock market. So um, a very small responsibility you have there, David. Well, it's uh, it's interesting. It's active. Never, never a dull moment. And, uh, and that's the uh, that's the forecast here. That's the forecast. So with that, um, tell us what you're seeing. You know, we've seen the evolution of the equity market. We saw, you know, one of the fastest drawdowns in history in 2020. One of the fastest recoveries as well. Um, a lot of people, you know, miss some of that rally, thinking that there's going to be rollovers and like. You guys were very good about calling this. You guys have nailed your economic forecast as well, pretty strongly this year. So, you know, what are you seeing as we go into the fourth quarter in the U.S. equity market? Obviously, there's been some stumbling in September, but how are you thinking about the setup of the market? What, what are you seeing there in the U.S. market today? Well, I uh, have the benefit here working amongst uh, a group of uh, macro participants uh, in the research department. My colleague, Jan Hatzius, is our chief economist. And my responsibility is focusing on the, uh, the equity market. And so uh, taking that as a launching pad, we basically have a decelerating economic activity uh, here in the U.S. So that is a sort of cautionary aspect. On the other hand, from a corporate profitability uh, point of view, uh, businesses have responded uh, quite effectively in this, uh, not just the early part of coming out of the pandemic, but more recently, uh, becoming more efficient. And we've, uh, you know, surprisingly, frankly, come back to record margins. We have record profit margins. When I say we, the S&P 500, if you look at the Russell 2000, some other various metrics uh, for the, the U.S. Uh, equity markets and different benchmarks, but profits, uh, profit margins have come back uh, dramatically. And so I think that's really the, the key story, uh, as far as I'm concerned, is looking into the fourth quarter. The economy will be decelerating, or at least that's our forecast. 
uh, rates are likely to uh, come a little bit higher than where we are now. We're kind of 1.3% or so on the day we're re re recording this, uh, this podcast and maybe rising to around 1.6% on 10-year treasury yields. And that's generally a you know, reasonable backdrop for, for equity prices rising. And so a forecast uh, Jeffrey, at the end of the year, uh, around 4,700, which would be up maybe five, sort of a little over maybe 6%, 7%, depending on where we mark uh, the end of the day today. Uh, that's the trajectory. And uh, as I see it. Yeah, six, 7%. That sounds like, uh, I don't know, just roughly four and a half to six years in the 10 year, right, <laughs> of yield that you would get there today. So uh, not bad for a quarter's return. Um, you know, one thing you mentioned was uh, profit margins and peaking. And I've heard this narrative from many pundits and, and analysts out there, peak growth. And you referenced deceleration. I've heard this both in the economic growth as well as the earnings side of the equation. And I like to remind folks that peak growth doesn't mean that, you know, we're going into a recession, right? It's just the rate of growth is decelerating. So how are you thinking about that? And what do you think about kind of as we get into 2022 and the trends you see underway and the setup of corporate America? So the idea, and it's a good point to, to clarify, the idea of decelerating growth, again, it's growing, but just at a, at a, at a reduced pace versus the previous quarter or the, the previous year. And so the setup looking into 2022, and make no mistake about it, Jeff, right now, everyone, uh, when I say everyone, the portfolio managers with whom I speak, which is sovereign wealth funds and pension funds and endowments and insurance companies and long only mutual fund managers, large cap and small cap and hedge funds, uh, you know, the entire investment community uh, and the risk asset of reference in the world, let's be pretty clear, is the U.S. equity market. It's not treasuries. It's, it's, it's the equity market right now. And, uh, and the focus is on next year and what the trajectory looks like and the idea of, uh, of economic growth persisting and, and continuing, but at a decelerating rate means that companies in the corporate world that have a better probability of having more secular growth, if you will, can paddle in, uh, in, a, in a direction which is less affected by uh, the vicissitudes of what's happening in the economic environment. So what are we talking about? It's duration. It's equity duration. It's the same concept in the bond market. The idea of when is the average time in the future you're generating these cash flows. And the idea for companies, you know, that's what the market is traded all year long. It's not so much cyclicals versus defensives or uh, value versus growth, it's duration. And the idea when rates were rising, companies that had a shorter uh, time life for their, for their cash flows did really well. And then really since March, it's all been about, uh, as rates come back, came back lower, it's been uh, extending duration, just like you did in the bond market, I'm sure, in your portfolio. And so these secular growth stocks, arguably those that have if you will, in the cybersecurity, some of the software companies, that's what everyone in corporate America is doing. They're spending money on technology to maintain and try to improve their margins. And those are the beneficiaries, whether the economy is growing at a more rapid pace or a slower pace. What we've seen is this persistence of, of growth. So I think that going into 2022, the idea of rates going a little bit higher, you know, generally speaking, you would shorten your duration, but we're not anticipating that rates go that much higher. And so some of the bigger cap, more secularly growing companies were would be benefiting, in my view, in this backdrop that I just sketched out for you. Yeah, it's amazing you use that comparison to duration. And I, I did an external podcast, not my own yesterday, 
And we were talking about this and I was saying, you know, about rising rates and how it affected things. And I used the concept of duration as well, like you did. And, you know, they kind of scratched their heads. And I said, look, what's the what's the meaning of duration? We all know the mathematical it's for a rise in rates. But when you talk, when you learn the concept of duration, it's essentially what's your break even on the present value of the cash flows. Right. That's what you're talking about. How long does it take you to on average on a PV basis to get your money back? It's exactly what you're talking about in the multiples here. So what are some of the risks to, to that, that, that argument as well right now as we think about margins coming under pressure, we've seen kind of the rise of labor and having you know, more pressure on the wage component. How are you factoring in that to your analyses as you think about 2022? So here's how we think about, when I uh, think about duration, we think about what percentage of the valuation of a stock is attributable to the cash flows of the next 10 years and how much is the perpetuity so the super fast growing companies a larger percentage of the value of the shares is a, is really that that longer term growth so how do i think about that so when i said earlier that margins are at peak levels margins net margins in the tech sector are 25 percent wow net margins across the rest of the u.s equity market 12. 25 versus 12. So first of all, there's a lot more money to play with, if you will, margin, you know, pun intended, a lot more margin to play with in, 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 in addressing uh, the higher input costs that may also be there. That's number one. Number two, as we think about labor costs, like where, where are some of the big input costs that everyone's focusing on? Labor is one. Uh, and, and sort of the idea is really where, what's the impact on margins, but labor costs would be one. So the typical company, spends around 13% of its revenues are consumed by its labor budget. I use that term labor budget. That's your salary, bonus, uh, medical costs, stock-based compensation, options, the whole shooting match. The cost of your employee base of a company is around 13% is consumed by, uh, by, 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 by labor. And that's going to range from 5% at the low end to 25 or 30% at the high end. So what we're looking for is, not looking for, but what is likely to do better, have less sensitivity to margin pressures are companies where there's high margins to begin with, and then where their labor costs are generally speaking somewhat less on the lower end of that distribution. And you see that often in some inside the technology companies. On the other hand, if you're looking at more consumer facing, uh, some of the industrial companies, they have a higher proportion of their uh, of their of their revenues are consumed by their labor budget. And so that's one big variable, I'd say labor costs. The next big issue out there is taxes, right? We're sitting here today, uh, I guess it's the, it's the 21st of September. Uh, there's expectation of a tax uh, agreement, there's infrastructure, and then there's this uh, sort of reconciliation. And the assumptions that I am making, uh, along with my colleagues in, in economics research here at Goldman, we're assuming that there's going to be a tax uh, hike that's gonna take place on the corporate side. Exactly the specifics of that still being negotiated, but we're assuming that, Jeff, in our earnings forecast, which is only 2% earnings growth, 2% from this year, 2021, until 2022. So that is part of a headwind. If you told me we're not going to have a tax reform or tax hikes, then we'd have earnings growth around 7%. So you kind of, in our view, we're kind of walking that down to around 2% growth. Coming full circle back to your earlier question, why is it that that secular growth, why is it that longer duration stocks are likely to do better is because they have 
generally higher margins, significantly higher, and they are less uh, exposed on the labor front. And number three, they may be subject, like everybody else, to some of the taxes, and it depends on where the specifics are, how much of the increase in taxes is for non-US revenues versus domestic revenues, a lot of the specifics. But I think that's the backdrop as I see it and why those stocks like to do better. Yeah, I think it's 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 a great environment to, to have a low overhead and low low labor input cost at this point, just given what we've seen, just the pressure on wages generally. But as I think about the other thing I'm asked a lot about is really the inflation front. And so walk me through how you guys are viewing inflation today. Um, and does it matter, given that you said really it's a duration trade? So if the bond market effectively kind of ignores the inflation prints that we've seen, obviously a big Fed meeting tomorrow where our, our listeners won't get this till after that on Thursday. So I won't make you make a forecast on the Fed. That's not your business. But as you think about the inflation component too, how do you think about that working into some of these valuations? Is it, is it just really does the bond market price it because of the duration component? And if we sit here at like a 130 to like a 150 tenure, it doesn't matter how much inflation we get. Or is that put pressure on margins as well? So the idea of inflation, obviously, is your area of expertise as well in, uh, in, in your side of the country, I guess, since I'm in New York and you're in California, yeah. um, in, in, in terms of economics, is it input costs? Well, you're out there in, uh, in the, the heart of the problem, if you will, which is the Port of Los Angeles and Long Beach, which is all yep. the data that uh, we suggest, all the not just anecdotal, all the conversations I have with corporate uh, executives and on, on, on public companies, which is there's a huge delay, all the, the, the cargo ships out there in the, in the Pacific kind of idling. And then once they do unload the cargo containers, then there's a long backlog getting it onto the trains and have the, the, the modal transportation around the country. So that supply chain disruption is definitely something I hear a lot about. And that's obviously one source of inflation. It's clearly visible. You can, you know, you hear about it in a conference call transcripts and listening to management's in one-on-one conversations. That's definitely an issue. The labor costs we made reference to earlier is definitely an issue. That's another source of, uh, of, 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 of if you will, uh, not just inflation, but I'm also thinking about it, Jeff, in terms of the how does that impinge on equity prices? It's basically uh, it absorbs some of the profits that might otherwise go to, to, to shareholders or, in fact, to compensation for, for, for employees. And so when I think about valuation, I'm like, well, it's probably going to be come through as an equity investor through nominal rates uh, or, or real rates. I mean, you know, we can look at it, you know, either one of those two directions as a, as a transmission mechanism. And the idea of rates, and well, in this case, you know, interest rates, you said positive scenario, 130 to 150. Goldman view is nominal rates climbed to 1.6% by the end of the year, you know, kind of in that range. Basically, equity prices likely to stay at a pretty elevated level valuation-wise, kind of where we are now, and sort of the trajectory of earnings takes us higher. I think the source of, of demand is where I think about it from a, if you will, from an inflation point of view, where's the demand coming from? for shares. And it's sort of a supply demand uh, story. And it's basically individuals, there's five more than $5 trillion in US money market mutual funds. And 56% of all those assets are held by individuals. And that money, in our, my forecast, like it to you know, come into, into equities. We have the view of the uh, Fed being on hold for two years till the second half of 2023. So you're not getting any money on that, on the, on that, on that literally the money market mutual funds giving you <laughs> virtually nothing. And so some of that money, not all of it, some is going to come into the equity market, number one. And then another big source of it is corporate 
the corporate bid on the buybacks, which is very, very significant. Now, right now we're in a buyback. We just entered the, uh, the buyback blackout period when companies ahead of their earnings are not buying right now, but they have been a consistent source of demand for a decade. Uh, one of the biggest sources of demand, in fact, and that's likely to persist. The authorizations this year, Jeff, have been really record high levels. And so demand from corporates, demand from individuals, that's where I anticipate the demand coming from for equity prices. Now I think about it. Yeah. What about the supply side of equities, too? We, we've seen some IPOs come out this year and we've seen some falter. There's been some good stories. I think of like a Robin Hood that, that performed quite well. And I juxtapose that against like a Coinbase that, that really struggled out of the gate, too. And so what, what do you think about the dynamic of companies staying private longer, the VCs controlling more of that market, getting extracting more value to their shareholders and their fund holders? Uh, prior to bringing them to market versus kind of those traditional paths we saw 20 years ago. And so do you think some dynamic has changed there, which also brings this competition in for the existing equities? Or do you see that kind of changing with, you know, we have a couple IPOs coming out in the next week or two, right? The volume of equity issuance has been extraordinary. Uh, in terms of not just the IPO market, it's been super, super uh, active, follow-on equity offerings, uh, record, really record, record high uh, levels. We haven't really mentioned SPACs, the special purpose acquisition corporations, uh, which are basically a, sort of a blind pool of capital that's raised to then go and, uh, and, and, and acquire private companies, if you will, uh, a reverse IPO, if you think about it in yeah, that context. Yeah. Um, and so that was extraordinarily active from August of 2020 last year till around the end of March of, of this year. So that was about six month period when it was, uh, you know, extraordinarily waived. There were uh, on average uh, about uh, sort of four, four SPACs a day seemed to be going public for pretty much uh, a six month period. And that's uh, that certainly slowed down a lot. But your question is an interesting one, uh, hugely debated, by the way, uh, on the idea of companies if you will, should they be delaying, should they be, but they have been delaying going public for a long time, multiple rounds, A, B, C, D, E, F rounds in the private equity world, raising capital in the VC world, and then going public uh, much later in the life cycle, as opposed to historically companies went public uh, earlier in their, uh, in, 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 their, in their life cycle. Uh, well, the issue is historically, we've done a lot of analysis. You're basically looking for about 40% revenue growth 40% revenue growth that's forecast over the next couple of years, A, and B, a path to profitability where companies are positive net income by year two or year three. Those are statistically significant predictors of whether a IPO, a new company, actually outperforms the benchmark. Revenue growth, 40% a year for the next several years, A, and path to profitability, those two variables are the key. And that's what the, the analyst community and investors are, are trying to identify those companies because there's a law, there's a tail. And the few companies that really outperform do great, generally speaking, statistically. Yep, yep. And then a whole bunch of IPOs tend to lag. And that's why people are you know, fo so focused in this area where they often come at a, at a discount valuation. Yeah, well, you also mentioned SPACs too. And so, you know, the, these have been some of the darlings of the, of the industry, been able to raise, you know, blind pools, as you said. Um, what, and then as of late, they've, they've struggled a bit as a, as a cohort, right? And so when you think about kind of the SPAC business and you call it the reverse IPO, I'll call it an OPI just to, you know, reverse it there, uh, the acronym. But, you know, when you think about what's going on in that market, 
is that really just a, a, a better way of executing a business plan where you know the person with that capital is able to bring that to market um, and you're just using this blind pool to go after it? Or how do you how do you explain kind of the phenomenon there in the SPAC world? So the lot of there's a lot of uh, nuances relating to the special purpose acquisition corporations that the SPACs why they sort of had they've been around for decades right why right. is it that they had a flurry of, of, of activity well part of it I think was coming out of the um, the the COVID the crisis was there was an opportunity set a lot of companies small private businesses needing capital, needing access to capital to for solvency and liquidity reasons. And so private you know, individuals and, and these SPACs sort of sprung up as a way of injecting that into companies. And the process by which they do that, of course, is to is to merge with a, a, a private company and a, and a public shell. And that's the uh, that was one of the impetuses, if I if I would identify it. Uh, and then the second is basically raising capital where there's a uh, there's an option on the part of the investor investor in a SPAC. If you are investor in and own shares in a SPAC, the SPAC uh, manager runs runs around, if you will, proverbially, and finds a uh, finds <laughs> a private business they want to buy, uh, merge with, and then they go back to you as the investor, saying, "Look, you have a, a put option. Do you want to do you want to continue uh, to 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 you know continue with this investment, or if you don't, you'll get your cash back." Uh, with a little bit of interest, and interest rates are virtually nothing, so very little amount of interest, and uh, and, and and you know, take your money and go and go home, if you will. And so I think that was a, an allure of people saying, "Look, interest rates are zero, so my opportunity cost, if I had, as long as I didn't need that capital immediately, I had a put option in there." I think people find that to be very interesting. And the third idea, or a third aspect that I would identify, Jeff, is that basically when you'd go. And look at an IPO of a potential company that's going to do initial public offering. All of the financials are backward looking, and you have to make your own projections and assess where you think the prospects are for that business. How much are you willing to pay? Almost going back to that our first uh, discussion point on duration, like well, what is that? What is the forward path of this business? Whereas in the world of a SPAC, when it was merging with a private company, those documents would become you know, filed with the, the Securities and Exchange Commission. They could often, they could include and often did, uh, here's what the model of the private company, which was private, so it could publish these, these expectations, these forecasts, their budgets. For the their, their model, their, their growth model that always seemed to be upward and to the right, yes? Right, well, and, that's, and so then you as an investor could have said, you could put your own handicap, put your own haircut on what you thought the prospects of that happening. So I think those, some of the building blocks as to why that sort of sparked a huge uh, you know, activity in, uh, in, in, the, in the SPAC world. I think it's the rate, I think the low rate environment was a component to it. The opportunity set coming out of the, the pandemic, uh, the nature of, of the disclosure and the forecast that could be there. And finally, I would add on these, uh, these pipes, these private investment in public equities, these, these, these yep. other uh, ac uh, um, capital raises that would be taking would take place concurrently with uh, the closure of the deal. So that's another way of injecting large amount of it's a recapitalization basically of a private business taking it public in in in, in, a, in, a, in a big way. And so I think that's that's certainly something that has been uh, you know a big area of focus. I think it's less less uh, active right now. But meanwhile, all that capital that has been raised, those are deals that are likely to be announced sometime in the next you know, year because they sort of had two year horizon to, to, to make an acquisition. So that's a big area, big area, I think of deal flow happening going in the future, maybe less so 
in the uh, in the new IPO market right now. I think there's there's plenty of activity and volume of existing companies going public. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, one more question on microstructure. Uh, I'll I'll let Sam chime in here. I'm hogging the conversation, but. Um, I, I'd be remiss not to ask you about the resurgence of retail trading. And we saw this with number of accounts opened. Um, you know, Robinhood was initially out there as one publicly uh, disseminating their data with their open source data, uh, showing that to everyone. Then they decided to claw that back. They got a lot of kudos for it. But then when you dug into the traditional brokerage houses, you saw the same thing. Number of accounts open, flurry of activity. Um, you know, as, as you think about that impact on the overall market, uh, we always talk about democratization and we want to bring investing to the masses. And uh, there's a lot of criticism about all these new accounts, these retail traders, they're on Reddit, they're using memes to do investing. How are you interpreting, you know, the impact from retail and what's your opinion on it? On Is it a positive, a negative uh, attribute or is it just kind of a wash? Well, I'd say it'd probably come down and it's more of a wash. Um, I would say, you know, on a, on a sort of personal philosophical level, the gamification of, uh, of investing, I, I think is actually, is sort of a disappointing development. Uh, and the idea of, you know, investing, that's so much professional, but there's obviously real world consequences that people lose money and that should be uh, and, and And when you say gamification, you're talking about, you get the little fireworks when you do a trade or something that 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 releases you know the the cortisol or increases your cortisol yeah, levels and you're, you're you're it's like having chocolate you have your confetti show up on your yeah. iphone and then you made a trade and 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 then that that is a part of the gamification that i'm referencing that it makes it like a video game uh and you know, my teenagers might use but 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 that's i think that's sort of a disappointing because i think as i said investment's a, a serious business like you would you would agree is professionally but just the idea that there's risk, there's risk involved, and I don't think that that sort of gets um, maybe uh, reduced. Yeah, our dopamine doesn't get triggered when we talk about risk management, right? So, yeah. Right. Well, that's fair point. Fair point. So uh, when I look at that, we look at some of the ownership categories of the equity market. Household ownership of equities is about one third. Right, we look at the Federal Reserve data, about a third of the, of the equity market is owned by individuals. And then you could think about uh, mutual funds, both active and passive, uh, own a little less than a third, sort of almost 30%. You look at the pension funds and international investors, you kind of look at those different categories and that's almost 90% of the ownership of the market comes in those different categories. You can throw on hedge funds and other categories, but they tend to be relatively small in terms of their total dollars, although with the hedge funds, it tends to be a higher amount of the overall turnover in the volume. But your question was about retail trading. And I think about, you know, it's certainly a new source of demand. I'm not sure that's necessarily a net increase because it may be money that alternatively might have gone into a mutual fund. Instead, if you will, it's been clawed back and individuals are taking of democratization, if you will, Jeff, in terms of taking responsibility and, and actually choosing to own their own, own it uh, own it directly. I think what's one of the interesting aspects of this is the nature of the market structure. And when you think about the five largest stocks in the market, and uh, you know we can think about Apple and Microsoft and uh, Amazon and Google and Facebook, those five stocks, they comprise 22% of the S&P 500, and you can put that 
as a holding point and say in 2000, 20 years ago, the top five stocks at that time were 18%. So we have a more concentrated market today in the overall market. But then Jeff, when you look at the growth index, say the Russell 1000 growth index, those same five stocks are 38%, 38% of the benchmark. And now you have a situation where growth mutual funds, many growth mutual funds are in violation of the SEC guidelines on what <laughs> constitutes a diversified equity fund. And so you have issues about uh, fund growth funds choosing to relinquish that designation as a diversified fund, or else they have to diminish or lower or be underweight meaningfully those major st no, those stocks simply for diversification rules. So there's interesting aspects of risk in the passive market that are not always appreciated by investors because these five stocks, and that's not a criticism of the companies, they're just very, very big, they're super successful, they have uh, huge margins, their revenues are growing, and they have had this uh, increased weighting in the, in, the, in, the, in the benchmarks that's very, very significant, and money that's going into equities, which is very significant this year, uh, is going in proportionally very significantly to those, uh, to those stocks. Yeah, you mentioned that. I told Sam he's going to jump in, but I've changed my mind here. Um, you know, because uh, there's an important topic there you you, you mentioned too, because you were talking about indexing, and so we've seen the rise of indexing. Indexing does very well in a momentum-based market driven by the largest shares, and we've seen that for many years now too. And the top five, you know, on market capitalization haven't changed significantly. They've shuffled around like the top eight or so. And so there's been this rise of indexing. The ETF has been a great vehicle to execute that idea. Well, what is your take on the rise of indexing? Have we have we kind of seen the peak in it? Do you expect that to be more trend? Uh, the reason I asked that is I just asked you about retail and you talked about, well, they would have bought a mutual fund or an ETF before they decide I want to you know, control my destiny. I want to focus on one or two companies. And so uh, what are you seeing there in the data? What's it telling you? What's your gut tell you about the role of indexing as it plays into most investors mindset? So we look at the the money flow. Uh, we look at this weekly, and obviously, in your uh, you know, double line, you certainly have lots of line of sight into your own uh, business and the flows that are happening there. Uh, we don't see that on an individual fund basis, but in aggregate, uh, you know, money continues to go into uh, passive uh, passive assets. Um, that's number one, and that's domestically. Uh, we're sort of coming out of, although at a relatively lower pace this year than in prior years, money coming out of active. But it's still steadily going into the into the uh, into the passive here in the U.S. But in non-U.S. assets, it's been equally so, and it's been total inflows, like four hundred billion dollars this year, uh, pretty much e e each side of that, uh, which has been very significant non-U.S. Uh, equity markets, which are generally trading at lower valuations. Uh, we can debate or discuss whether or not theirs are appropriately, given they have less growth and le lower margins and less efficient markets, a lot of other things uh, that, are, that are taking place out there. But broadly speaking, money is definitely going into non-U.S. products. Uh, now, my focus uh, professionally is, on the, uh, is more on the U.S. equity market, but my colleagues uh, you know, do what, basically do what I do in Europe and in Tokyo and in uh, Hong Kong, looking at the other uh, various uh, markets around the world. And those trade at lower valuations, um, but arguably less growth and arguably risk-adjusted returns still, I think, certainly competitive here in the U.S. with some of these other markets. And obviously, you saw what happens in, uh, more recently in China uh, on, their, on, their, uh, on their market. So risk-adjusted, uh, the U.S. still looks pretty attractive.
Yeah, David, one of the things that you had mentioned earlier on was uh, you, you mentioned put option, and this made me immediately think of the Fed. And I, I think you might have alluded to to the Tina trade as well. And I think much of the you know, the tailwinds in U.S. equities has really come courtesy of monetary policy a la the Fed over the last decade. So as we enter Fed week, or as we're in Fed week here, um, you know, the Fed's policy might be changing over the, in, in the, in the coming months. So just wanted to see what your thoughts about the potential impact of a Fed taper on, of asset purchases on equity performance. And then also if we, once we get there, the eventual liftoff on rates. So Sam, it's a good, uh, it's a good question. Uh, a lot of topics, uh, questions that come from clients about the relationship between rates and equities and valuation, what kind of uh, stocks likely to do well. So first uh, response, I'd say uh, somewhat trade expression, but tapering is not tightening. Uh, I would sort of embrace that view. Okay, so they're reducing the pace and you know, I have the benefit. It's like deceleration, right? We talked about <laughs> it too. It's not peak, it's just decelerating the purchases. Right? So I have the benefit of my colleague, Jan Hatzius and the team down the, down the hall were telling me kind of here's their, their forecast for the deceleration and the tapering, if you will, of the buying in the long end of the curve. And so that seems a reasonable assumption for, for us to be making the, the Fed seems to be telegraphing that, you know, quite, quite, uh, quite directly, if you will. Um, and the assumption uh, from the Goldman economics team is that uh, the Fed will not be having liftoff, uh, to use your term, Sam, or the, you know, actually hiking on the funds rate until the second half of 2023. So that's two years from now. So in that environment, yes, to get some tapering, maybe over the can debate or they discuss uh, what the actual pace that will be in the tapering, but should be completed sometime in a year or so. And then it will take some uh, additional time into regnum until they actually start to taper, uh, start to tighten. So that's sort of the assumption that we're making here at Goldman. And that's where we look at, well, when the equity market, you know, it'll have an effect on valuation, but you referenced the Tina trade, there's no alternative. You know, I, I believe what's one of the reasons why equities continue to receive inflows because you know, credit spreads are unusually tight. Our view is that it's probably widen on the high yield and on the on the on the investment grade side. The actual rates themselves maybe they go a little bit higher in terms of uh, you know Fed Fed uh, uh, you know, Treasury yields going a little bit higher. But it's not as though these other alternatives are that attractive uh, in the equity market. You can look commodities have already had a huge run, although we're pretty optimistic uh, in terms of Goldman Sachs and my colleagues. Uh, Focusing on uh, on the commodities area, aluminum prices, uh, copper, et cetera, likely to go you know, generally higher. Uh, so those are the other sort of some of the obvious alternatives you think about. Uh, equities look pretty, you know, pretty, pretty, pretty attractive in that in that world. One of the things, you know, going back to that earlier point we we men mentioned, why Sam would the rates be going higher? We're kind of further along in the economic expansion, but ultimately it's about inflation, and ultimately from a equity investor perspective, it's about margins. It is about margins and what companies can do, which companies are better or less well positioned to pass through those in higher input costs or manage around it. And one of the things we clearly picked up on in not just the first, but even the second quarter conference calls, and of course, we're coming up on when we'll have the third quarter conference calls, management's kind of go through all the different levers they're trying to pull and positioning to try and maintain or if anything, grow their margins. And I have certainly been surprised, but margins across the market are at record high levels. And what we're looking at in this context, Sam, is well, which companies have high and stable gross margins? Who's demonstrated the ability to maintain their margins over the last 
four or five years, even going back before the pandemic, sort of who's been able to generate those stable margins. And that's valuable. That is, that is worth something now in this environment. Okay, uh, I appreciate the comments from your, your team too. We spoke with Jeff Curry last year and you know we, we wholeheartedly agree with him. You know, we like to debate things. That's why we love having Goldman come in. We like to have those intellectual debates, but uh, it was hard to disagree with anything he was saying there. And so one thing that we've heard a lot about too from investors, and we've seen this in the consultant community and institutional community is the rise of ESG and you know, the investing and you know, and again, I was, I was talking to Jeff about that, you know, when he was, you know, in our uh, in our virtual office and we we're talking commodities and how perverse it, it is that, you know, we have to use more carbon. We have to use more pollutants to to get to this level. And everybody focuses on the E component of that. What, what are you seeing from both client demand and how you guys are thinking about ESG? Is it you know, is, is the label and the moniker just a fad for, you know, people trying to raise money? Um, you know, obviously we all care about the E, we all care about the S and we've all as investors done the G. So, you know, aren't, isn't it entrenched in there? Is there something different this time? How are you thinking about the whole ESG movement? So it is a widely uh, debated topic in the uh, investment community. And we know the SEC is looking into some uh, mutual funds that have been uh, marketing their products, indicating that they're using ESG. And the question is, is in what form and are they really doing it uh, in terms of right. uh, in, their, in, their, in their security selection? Uh, so it's definitely real. There's no question. Engine number one, uh, which obviously won the proxy battle against uh, you know, Exxon uh, in, in, in most recent uh, proxy season. So there's yep. definitely investor interest embracing the, uh, the topic of ESG. My observation would be a couple. Number one, E, S, and G are interesting three letters of the alphabet, but they're not really related to one another. I mean, there's environmental, <laughs> uh, there's the governance, and there's the social aspect. And it's a little bit like, uh, you know, I guess, uh, you know, motherhood and apple pie, although I should maybe put parenthood and apple pie to be more, more uh, inclusive. But the idea is nobody's against any of those. Yes, we should be more carbon friendly, carbon neutral uh, environment, global warming, et cetera, et cetera. Be better to one another socially, you know, and, and, have, and, and run have, things and well, have, right? Yeah. And, have, and, have, and have good governance. So you have, have, all those things seem like they're reasonable. Um, the idea of a common standard, I think, is a real problem. Uh, and I say that if you're looking and now your, your, your personal expertise or background is more say, on the fixed income side, uh, at least my understanding. And so the idea of if you look at Duff and Phelps and Moody's and Fitch and Standard and Poor's, there's like a 0.99 correlation, meaning all of those debt ratings, I'm talking about debt ratings, are pretty much consistent. They all use the same um, algorithms, they use the same balance sheet analysis, all those metrics. So they kind of, that's what they do. Then you look at the different uh, ESG providers, and there's a bunch of data providers, and they have like a 0.3 correlation because they're looking at totally different things. And as a, uh, both a management team of a company, as well as an investor, well, which which of those metrics should one be looking at? And I think that's a, uh, I think that's one of the concerns I have as a, as an analyst, as a strategist, which is, all right, I totally embrace the ESG concept, but what is that uh, telling us about, uh, about what's the right way to look at the data? How should that be disclosed by companies? And frankly, our analysis suggests that the market is not paying for a high or a low ESG score. 
And I think ultimately that's the bottom line as a, as a fiduciary obligation of an investor, which is, all right, are you investing the money? Uh, and if the market isn't valuing that as an attribute, uh, it may be socially uh, good to be, to be doing this, uh, but market isn't paying for that right now. It may at some point, but thus far we haven't seen it. It's amazing you point that out because I think it was the SEC that came out and said that you cannot put like in a retirement, a qualified account, an ESG fund just because it's ESG, right? Your fiduciary duty is for the investment returns and the attributes of that product. And ESG did not qualify. And a lot of people scratched their heads when that first came out. But I think you point this out. Um, and it, it's a very good observation, too, because a lot of the academic journals uh, articles that I read about it, because I'm very interested to, to try to understand this is we look back, you know, you think of Sharia law and, you know, the sin stocks, how, you know, if you invest on behalf of a church, it'll say in your IMA, you cannot buy these certain stocks. And you go back and look and it's like, those are some of the best performers because they've been overlooked by the market. And then others question the efficiency of capital. So I, I think it's a, it's a good debate. I mean, I don't, I, and I think you said it well, because none of us really argue that we want less carbon. We want to be good to one another. We want well-run companies, but you know, is it the end all be all? And, that, and that, that's kind of the question out there too. So I think it's a bit more philosophical than necessarily black and white today. But we are seeing, Jeff, just to be very clear, there's huge inflows into funds who designate themselves as ESG compliant or market themselves in that fashion. And so when we look at the, at the flows, just like we're looking at flows into U.S. and non-U.S. and growth and income and value funds and all the different, uh, if you will, layers of where, where, where money is going, ESG funds has been garnering a you know, positive flow, both passive and active, consistently for two years. Uh, you know, very significant. And so it's definitely where the money goes, then, uh, then uh, the, the companies have to respond to that, or they often will respond to that sort of Pavlovian, right? Behaviorally, that's where the money <laughs> yeah. is. You want to be making sure you're, you're checking the box. And so there's a little bit of greenwashing probably that goes on exactly, sure. uh, you know, on Earth Day, mark in your calendar, Earth Day is going to come out. And that's when all the, you know, all the, you know, uh, ESG um, statements of the companies that they publish on on uh, recyclable paper that uh, that they then send out about how <laughs> they're doing all these wonderful things. That's a cynic in me as a as, as a strategist. But that you know again, it's a it's an, it's a laudable goal. We all agree with those those three things. I think the finding it is uh, is a uh, is a is a challenge. Yeah, no, I, I think you you realize that um, us fixed income folk, or at least trained in fixed income, we, we tend to be cynics as well. And look, it's a hard attribute to figure out, right? Because that Venn diagram, it's hard to find things that line up in the in the overlapping of all three circles. So um, I have one last question for you, David, before you go here. And you know, let, let's be timely to our investors out there. You know, how, how should people think about their allocation to U.S. equities today? I won't put you on the spot on the bond market, but, you know, should you be overweight, neutral? What parts of the market are you liking? Give, give, a, give some advice on what you're telling your clients to our listeners today. Okay, so the idea of the, uh, the outlook for U.S. equities is pretty optimistic. And that is uh, the idea the economy is decelerating. We've talked a little bit about that. Earnings are growing. Valuation is high in an absolute context, but it's, uh, it's more reasonable in a low interest rate environment. And the money flow is, uh, is coming into the market. So you keep that as a framework, the economy, earnings, valuation, and money flow as a framework. And in that environment, what is likely to do better? Uh, so I've tried to sketch out in our, in our conversation today, technology, 
stocks, generally speaking, they're less sensitive to some of the margin pressures. They're starting with very high margins. There's less uh, pressure from a labor cost point of view and their, their, uh, their ability to be more secularly growing. Uh, the arguably, you know, I use an example of the um, of cybersecurity. That's just becoming, I would argue, it's just going to become more and more and more and more important as you go through uh, whether the economy is growing rapidly or slowly. It's likely to benefit. And there's a lot of yeah, other- we, we saw the iPhone hack, right? Where I can just, I can just send you a text message. You don't have to open it. I can control your phone. Not that right. I would do such a thing, but right. not that you would do so something. But anyway, that's the so that's the argument number one. Uh, number two, uh, the consumer reasonably, uh, you know, optimistic in. Some of some pockets of the of the of consumer spending uh, that, that that are there. I'd say areas to be let other sort of areas to emphasize uh, areas to be more cautious about uh, real estate right now uh, would be would be one area. Um, utilities, some of the more interest sensitive interest rate interest rate sensitive uh, equities components. Uh, some of the consumer staples uh, companies they've been very successful in passing through their higher input costs, taking up basically prices around 5%, most of them across the board in the summertime, raising prices on their products. Uh, so their margins have been, have been good and they've been stable, but they're not necessarily as high as some of the other companies uh, in some of the other industries. So I'd say those are some areas, real estate, utilities, consumer staples, sort of less enthusiastic about those, more focused, say, in the areas of, uh, of, of, uh, of technology. And I think that's a way to uh, to focus on it. When I come back, ultimately, I think it's about duration uh, and where we want to be in that, and rather be a little bit longer duration as a strategic investor looking out. Yeah. Okay, got you. So that is very helpful. It's a great conversation, David. I really appreciate the time you spent with us today. Uh, I love the speed and the energy you bring. Uh, there's a lot of that that I share that similarity. Some people say that. You know, I'm always just yelling at them and going at them too fast, but I love it. I like that people can slow this down, rewind it and listen to you again. However, but before you leave, we got to introduce you to Sam's favorite part of the show. So, Sam. So, uh, David, that <laughs> part of the show is called Sherman Says. It's where I'm going to offer a series of alternating prompts between you and Jeff to which I hope to get a concise, short, maybe even one word response uh, to that is top of mind. You know, it's been referenced, it's been referred to as a verbal war shark before. So I'm gonna start out with Jeff to give the example with equity bear market. What bear market? Unlikely. Do you give it a, a new one, uh, share buybacks? Powerful. Corporate tax rate. Going up. Higher. Higher. Yeah. Oh, we alternate, David. You can't get them all. You know? <laughs> well, this was okay. Jeff. Yeah. Corporate tax rates. Higher. Back to you, David, with meme investing. Overhyped. Trillion dollar coin. I'll take one. <laughs> Jay, I'll send you my address uh, tomorrow at the Fed meeting. Let me know. Not sure if they'll cure the uh, the debt ceiling problem or our, our debt load, but uh, you'll take it. I mean, I'll, I'll just put it on the wall. I'm not going to spend it. It won't be inflationary. I'm going to be the one with the trillion dollar coin. All it's right. not like someone's going to steal it. What are you going to do? You can't go spend it. They're going to know you stole it. Yeah. Well, at, that, at this point, you might not be the only one with a trillion dollar coin either. So we're <laughs> passing them out. Yeah. It's but like the hundred trillion Zimbabwe note, right? So <laughs> back to you, David, with contagion. Um, won't happen. 
deficit spending taper. Won't happen. <laughs> I like to recycle for the next question at times. We'll see. It tends to work too. It tends to work. It, yeah. So uh, back to you, David, with leverage. Um, corporate leverage is uh, high, and retail leverage or you know, personal leverage is is, uh, is is low in the data. That's actually a very good point because most people don't realize that the the household balance sheets have improved massively by both asset price and paying down debt. So where corporate America took it on and the government did, at least the consumer did not follow. So um, you know th that is that is a sign of health in the long term. Yeah, maybe that's the next chapter. Yep. So we're moving in the final round here. Sherman says, for Sherman, number one irritant post lockdown. Wow. <laughs> so I can't have it pre? <laughs> it's only post. Traffic. Yeah. Never um, mind, I think. Can yeah. That's always been one. I'm trying to think of something new. But see, that's your that's because you're in California, Los Angeles traffic. But in New York, in New York, in the COVID, there was no traffic for about a year. Now it's back to normal. There's a lot of traffic. Post locked. Okay, so coming back. Um, I'm irritated by wearing the mask for prolonged periods of time. I, I was a total masker. I was okay with it. There's something about the facial hair. It just doesn't work well. So um, that's the thing I'm struggling with the most when I have to do it for long periods of time. So like a five hour flight to New York, for instance, it's, that's pushing the limits. Yeah. That's what got me. Yeah. All right. And then the last one for today to you, David, is the number one on your post lockdown bucket list. Uh, international travel, absolutely. Um, for both business and personal, it's been uh, it's been uh, too long since I've had to use my passport. Yeah, yeah. The thing about international travel, it's a time where you get some good thinking done too. You got you know you're not going to be bothered. It's just a great place. So, David, we want to thank you once again. Thank you to all our listeners for providing us feedback. Uh, you can hit us up at um, use the email address shermanshow at doubleline.com. Uh, we'll answer all your questions. Uh, we'll uh, take some recommendations too of guests out there. But also, most importantly, you can catch us on YouTube. We're back to video recording here. We got David Costin live from the Goldman offices in, in downtown New York. And so we appreciate all of our listeners. Uh, you can hear it on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, you know, the Google Play. And don't forget to follow us on the Twitter, right? The Twitter is where we're at, you know, at Sherman Show Pod. So thanks again, David. We really appreciate it. Thanks for bringing the energy to the Sherman Show. Have a great day. You too. Have a nice day. Thank you for having okay, me. Take care. All right. Thanks again. Bye-bye now. The audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements, 
or any information contained in this podcast. Liability, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk.